So we're back for another week of deep dives into history. Two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. We are dedicated to it. Well, I, so today's going to be the first of multi-part series on the Supreme Court, right? History of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, yes. Hillary's a, Hillary's a little skeptical. Um, <laughs> clearly, one of us is more excited about the Supreme Court's history than the other. Yeah, I'm we'll a little see. bored, but Jeff has a really good way of like drawing me in and making me talk about things. So I read what I read, but I was like, I don't know. Oh, it seems a little boring, uh, but I do think it's important, right? I think it's important, and it's and I think it's one of these kind of institutional histories that the the contemporary way history gets approached in the academy oftentimes skips over these things, right? It's like, oh, we don't need to do this because that's not really that important. Well, it's critically important. And that's going to take us into November. Um, and then in November, you know, after we finish up the, the Supreme Court, we're going to do a little mini series on the history of Puritans. I'm so excited about that. And we're going to go all the way back to England. And we're going to talk about the emergence of the Puritans and why they get, kept getting booted out of countries. Kicked out. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm I mean, really they rule England. That. They rule England for a while, and then they get kind of booted out of England. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we mm-hmm. don't want you anymore. Yeah, we're good. We're actually good uh, on this. Yeah, um, but you know, that's kind of the plan uh, that'll get us into December. Um, I have some ideas for December. I know Hillary does as well, and then when we kind of understand what those are, we'll kind of uh, and make some decisions. We'll convey that to to our loyal listeners. Thank you for those of you who are getting back in the swing of resubscribing. Um, you know, we are kind of dedicated to, to being back regularly. That being said, please, if you enjoy our podcast, if you find it useful, um, don't just subscribe. Think about, you know, putting a little bit of dough our way via our Patreon link to help offset the cost of recording and hosting and and a bunch of other kind of expenses um we're both in academia we don't make much money at all i think we we we've calculated it i think we make less than the minimum wage per hour of work for sure per hour of work uh so yeah i mean that's that's be a pretty cool thing for you to do but uh yeah let's get right into it let's let's get to the supreme court welcome to an incomplete history i'm hillary and i'm jeff And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. All right, the Supreme Court. October, October is usually when the Supreme Court Historically, it's when the Supreme Court kind of convenes for its new season. I hate to call it a season. A new season of the court. What will they decide this time? On the next issue, on the next season of Supreme Court. I mean, it's kind of what it is, though, right? I mean, it Mm -hmm. is kind of um, approached that way. And uh, before we kind of dive into that really quickly, um, I know people love our weather reports. Oh, for God's sake, I thought we avoided that this time. Um, there's, yeah. uh, We got a little rain in San Diego the other day, which is a little weird um, to see moisture come out of the sky. Mm-hmm. 
Um, now we're back to like normal San Diego weather. It's like 70 degrees. All right. It's, you know, hot here and it rained on my way to camp or excuse me, on my way to class. I got rained on and then it stopped raining and then it rained again when I left. So it's just kind of drizzly, hot, humid today. But I'm, Florida- I'm kind of like crossing my fingers for it to cool down soon. Florida can get gross in September and October. It's been very hot and, um, you know, just it, no sign of letting up. But I think that by November, we should be in a better place. I mean, I remember being at a Gators football game back when I was much younger. And it was late, it was late September, early October. It was miserable. Mm-hmm. It was because it was in the middle of the day. It was hot, mm-hmm. humid. Um, thunderstorms kept like percolating in the distance, but none would none would come over Ben Hill Griffith Stadium. No, it's protected um, by God, I would imagine. Uh, yes, well, that's <laughs> that's back when the Gators were a good football team. But that's oh a God, whole. They lost other, to LSU this weekend. Everyone's so whole, upset about it. That's a whole other. Oh, sports! We're going to turn it into a sports podcast now. No, see, I can't do that. Um, that's worse than the Supreme Court for me. <laughs> so. So let's talk about the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, I understand it is a little dry. It's an institutional history. And I can say this honestly it is an institutional history of an institution overwhelmingly dominated by dead white men. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I love that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made a quote that, like, um, cause they said something like, well, when will enough women be on the Supreme court? And she's like, when all of them are women, because they've always been men. Like, why not just have nine women as Supreme court justices? I'm here for it. I'm here for it. So, I, I mean, I learned a lot doing research for this episode and I like, I initially I was like, Oh, we'll get through the civil war kind of Supreme court today. And now Honestly, we're only going to get to the fourth chief justice. I thought that you wanted to go up to Marshall. We're going to get through Marshall today. The Marshall court. Okay. And then we'll we'll do... Uh, Taney may need his own entire episode. His own because of Dred Scott, right? Well, and that's not the only bad decision he makes, right? I mean, it's... Oh, so it's, you're going to make judgments about how if their decisions are bad or good? I mean, Dred Scott's a bad decision. Yeah, Sure. It's a bad decision. Like nobody They're, would defend they it. They are America. completely just filled with bad decisions. Like it's like oh. constantly making horrible decisions. I mean, it's so funny because it really de- demystify the the court to me. I just saw all this. It's like this parade of like, what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. And and I, I think what we need to understand is it is an incredibly conservative institution. Mm-hmm. And by conservative, it was I founded for that purpose, right? It's to put, it's to pump the brakes on everything yes. the U.S. Yes. does. Yes. So prior, prior to uh, ratification of the Constitution of the United States of America, there is no national judiciary. Mm-hmm. Although Congress has this ability to to kind of settle disputes. And it's understood they could do that via some kind of judicial system. But for the most part, prior to the um, ratification of the Constitution, um, it was state courts and local courts. Those were the ones that kind of dealt with most issues. 
And yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I think that the history of the Supreme Court and the establishment of this court is a great example of attempting to create unification or to create standardization within this brand new country. Because I think something that we we don't emphasize enough is just like they were really trying to start from scratch here in many, many ways. And they were kind of just plodding along and trying to figure out what was going to work best and how it could work. And, you know, the, the creation of this court, I like what you said about it as it being a conservative entity and not in the sense of, you know, oh, it's conservative, like we would consider politics. It's that it is supposed to be just very, very cautious in uh, dictating the ways in which this brand new country is going to function, right? Uh, and I love thinking about it in that way. It's like, this is just a very brand new thought experiment. They are filled with mistakes all the time, um, but they're kind of charting new territory. Well, yeah. And I find out what's so interesting is um, Article 3 of the Constitution, then that's where the Supreme Court is is kind of, Congress is given the ability to create this Supreme Court, um, it actually draws on a long precedent of judges, right? And, and judges and courts are nothing new. So Congress establishing that isn't really anything new. What's going to happen, though, is what that Supreme Court starts to read into the dictates of the Constitution and what they're allowed to do. And really, for the first time in any political system, we're going to see a court start to rule on other parts of the government in a way that courts weren't really used prior to that point. Um, well, when we have that classic saying that everybody knows who's been to any civics class in the United States, this process of checks and balances, that's where this comes from, right? It's like trying to establish different branches of government to make sure that they're, you know, functioning or operating in a fair, just way. And, and you're right, like courts had never been used in that way before. Um, and it, it's again, to create this like uniformity or standardization for the way that the country would function. Well, and I think it's a recognition that this new federal government is going to have a level of power that the states aren't necessarily comfortable with. And they want to make sure there's some way to stop that the Congress of the federal government specifically from enacting legislation that runs counter to the document all these state officials sign on to, which is the Constitution, right? So they kind of vest the Congress with this broad uh, set of powers. They want to make sure there's some way they can keep control over that. Um, so Article 3 establishes the Supreme Court, although it doesn't establish the position of Chief Justice. It doesn't put anybody kind of in charge. Um, it kind of refers to the members of the court as judges, and it's pretty nonspecific about what this court's going to look like. It leaves it really up to Congress to map out um, most of the um, kind of most of the the, the specifics. Well, they don't even have it hammered out as to how many justices will serve on the court, right? And and I think the initial number was six. 
And so there, there are a lot of decisions that, again, are just being made, not arbitrarily necessarily, but there's a lot that they're trying to just figure out as they go along. Um, in the early years, the, the J. Rutledge and Ellsworth, uh, Ellsworth courts, 1789 to 1800, um, John J. was the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And he serves a term during a very tumultuous time in U.S. history, which is the very early Republic area, uh, excuse me, the very early Republic era. And again, while they're just trying to, you know, consider what does judicial review mean? What are the rules between the state and the federal government? And there's so much discomfort outside of the Supreme Court. There's so much discomfort about, well, what is this going to mean in terms of the states to have the rights to declare their own rules, laws, legislation, et cetera. And it's a fight that we still continue to have to this day. We've never really figured that one out. Well, so Jay, yeah. So John Jay, this first Supreme Court Chief Justice, um, first he's, a, he's an ardent federalist. Um, and he actually co-authors the Federalist Papers with Hamilton and Madison. Um, I mean, he doesn't write a large number of them, but he still writes some important ones. But he he wants this kind of strong central government. And he seems really reticent in his term as chief justice to exercise much control beyond procedural matters over what the Congress is doing. And in fact, a lot of historians and kind of commentators on the Supreme Court's history have said John Jay could have actually done what Marshall's going to do, which is firmly establish this precedent of judicial review that that the Supreme Court actually has a mandate in the Constitution to kind of review what the Congress is doing and determine its constitutionality. I would argue his caution, though, at that time was predicated on the really extreme tribalism of the early Republic, right? That marked that era of being a federalist in favor of a strong central government or an anti-federalist who's more in tune with wanting to have the states kind of lay things out for themselves. And I think that had he, like had John Jay been as assertive as he wanted to be as a federalist who was writing uh, the federalist papers, I think that that would have scared off a, already very shaky union of states at that time. What do you think? I, I mean, maybe, I don't know, because we look at when Jay leaves and Jay's only chief justice for six years, um, Jay resigns long before he dies. So Supreme Court appointments are for life, ostensibly, although there's a whole method to impeach a, chief, uh, a Supreme Court justice. Um he has a rich political career after he leaves the Supreme Court. I mean, his his position as first chief justice is not his last thing that he does. He becomes governor of New York, does a lot of things, kind of kind of runs for president, but doesn't run for president. Um, but John Rutledge, who replaces John Jay, has the shortest tenure of any chief justice. So Wasn't it Rutledge, like six months? Uh, 138 days. <laughs> so George Washington nominates John Rutledge for chief justice. Um, and, you know, his nomination gets rejected 
Uh, it's the only time a chief justice nomination has been rejected. Um, Taney comes close. When we talk about Taney, we'll talk about that. It's, I was really shocked at how chief justices, for the most part, have either been by acclamation or overwhelming majority votes. Like very few chief justice hearings have even come close. Um, Rutledge goes down in infamy as the one that loses. Uh, so he serves 138 days and then he resigns because his nomination is rejected. And, you know, it's, it's Rutledge and Ellsworth are interesting. Um, but they're, I, I mean, these first three together are kind of the court trying to find itself. And I want to kind of get to Marshall because I think this is the Supreme Court, as we understand it today, really starts under Marshall. Technically, it starts under Jay. But I think the way we understand what the court does is Marshall. I think Marshall takes this in a very new direction. Right. Um, you have some of the very first important decisions that are made in terms of laying out or hammering out what the country was going to do. I wanted to point out really quickly, though, before we get to Marshall, just how unpopular this job was. This oh, wasn't like a highly it. coveted position. Nobody wanted to do this, right? Yeah. First of all, it required, you know, you're saying like, oh, the season, right? It required meeting in New York twice a year. Um, it was very difficult to travel at that time. And they were coming from all over um, these, you know, the new United States, right? And it required just a huge commitment. And there wasn't, it wasn't a very popular thing to be doing. And so even though uh, Rutledge's nomination was rejected, like, I don't think that came as like, oh, I'm so sad about this, really, because like you were saying about John Jay, too. I mean, they they go on to just do other things. And it's, well, I think it's not it was, a coveted position. I think it was political suicide was what some people would view it as. Right. That that this is this is what do you do with this job? Like once you leave it, are you done? Like maybe that's why it has to be lifelong because there's no what you can like you're done politically at that point. Because you can um, be very unpopular, right? Well, and the thing is also these justices are not necessarily coming from other courts. There's second so many chief justices up until the relatively recent past, the 20th century, I would say, are coming from being Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury. Right. They're coming from these other positions. They don't have maybe a lot of judicial experience, although Rutledge does. Rutledge is chief justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court. So, I mean, the guy who has the most experience coming in actually loses. But it's um, regional, right? It's because of where he's from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's and, and that's the thing is there's already this tension. But the Marshall that's, Court, yeah. the Marshall Court, you know, comes in and you know, at this point, it's what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six people. So it's Marshall and five other justices. Um, and you might be thinking an even number. That's weird. That's not good. Uh, the number expands. We're going to see multiple expansions and contractions of the number of justices. I mean, the, the expansion track kind of reaches its crescendo when FDR threatens to pack the court. Um, but nine is not this magic number for the Supreme Court, right? There's there's nothing in the Constitution that mandates it has to be nine. Right. It's expanded um, and contracted several different times. It, and there isn't any hard and fast rule to how many that there should be. 
Um, I, I, I would say, you know, like what you're saying about FTR packing the court, like, obviously I think that this opens the door for just, well, an infinite number of justices. Right. Well, um, so historically yeah. we, we have tried to keep it to nine, um, but it's not set in stone. Well, and the whole thing is, is if you're going to tie Supreme Court justice to these circuit courts of appeals, mm-hmm. which is, I don't think we're going to get a lot into the minutia of how that works exactly, but each justice also is in charge of a circuit court that they kind of hear things in. Um, as the population of the U.S. expands, you have to create new circuit courts. Otherwise, there's just too much to do in one circuit court. And if you're going to expand the number of circuit courts, then you should expand the number of justices. Right. So I think there is kind of this rationale you can make that we have to be willing to expand the Supreme Court as population expands. We have to balance that with what's still a manageable number. I mean, does do 50 Supreme Court justices make any sense? Probably not. Right. Um, does, does three make any sense? No, probably not. So maybe the number is somewhere between three and 50. Somewhere between there. Right. But I mean, but it's like, but Congress does have a lot of authority to kind of determine what that number looks like. Right. But so Marshall comes in and, you know, the first three justices are kind of not even caretakers because there's nothing really to caretake, but it's very kind of tepid engagement with questioning Congress's ideas. Um, And then we get this bombshell decision, um, which is kind of interesting. And it's, you know, out of the uh, um, Judiciary Act, there'd been a lot of rules that have been created, um, including uh, um, a a thing called a writ of mandamus. I'm butchering that word, I'm sure. And it basically says a court, um, government officials have to perform an act they're legally required to perform. So you can't, um, malfeasance is closely related to this, I think. You can't, if you have a job you're supposed to do as a government official, you have to do it. Um, So what ends up happening is in 1803, there was a trial in a case called Marbury versus Madison and James Madison. (laughs) That James Madison (laughs) refuses to appear um, before the court. Um, And, you know, it's been called the single most important decision in American history, as far as a court order goes. Um, And what, was wanted was for Madison to deliver this this list. So as Secretary of State, Madison was supposed to kind of create this commission list. Again, it's kind of unnecessary detail, um, but he didn't want to do it um, for this one guy, William Marbury. Um, uh, well, he didn't want to do it. This one guy who didn't get his kind of the list put into the record and acted on William Marbury gets a legal challenge and says, look, Madison, in his position as Secretary of State, is mandated to perform this this role. He has no choice. It's a a part of his job. He can't choose to ignore this. Um, And Marbury versus Madison, they kind of 
order Madison to appear. He refuses to appear. Um, and the court kind of rules, the Supreme Court rules, February 24, 1803, that Madison is legally bound to deliver Marbury's commission and that Marbury could sue Madison as Secretary of State. Um, but it also said they couldn't force Madison to deliver the commission because the Judiciary Act of 1789 was in fact unconstitutional. That when Congress wrote that, there were elements of that act that were unconstitutional. And this writ of mandamus that was included was actually an unconstitutional act. So there's something very circular going on here, right? Yeah, but that's the most important point ultimately is that they established the power to declare laws unconstitutional in the first place, which is the very important legal principle of judicial review. Like so this is 1803. Mm -hmm. They go back and declare this 1890 or 1789 Judiciary Act unconstitutional. Even though that's not what this case is really about, they use it to go back and do this. Um, and it establishes the idea of judicial review. And what Marshall said was, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. It's pretty important. Um, yeah. Now, we're going to see a later conflict with the court because Andrew Jackson's going to famously kind of point out how how does the Supreme Court enforce any of its decisions, right? So the court decides something. Well, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to enforce this? Where do we go from here? So politics is very much tied into this. In Marbury versus Madison, uh, it's decided during the presidency of Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. And there is some conflict um, Thomas Jefferson is a Democratic Republican. Um, John Marshall is a Federalist. Um, they definitely do not see eye to eye on many things about the way government should function in the country. Um, so during this tenure as well, we get the first impeachment of a sitting justice. Uh, 1804, Samuel Chase. Well, I think that that's something that we don't even realize can be done, right? Is that yeah. you can impeach a Supreme Court justice. So for me, in current political debate, it's not so much about expanding the court as it is impeaching existing justices. Well, that's the thing is like, so if you've been ordered, if you are appearing before the Senate for a confirmation hearing and under oath you lie, is that an impeachable offense? It certainly sounds like it. Seems impeachable to me. Um, Lying I mean, under oath, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean the the impeachment of Samuel Chase has to. There, there. The argument is he shows political bias in his conduct judicially, which um, that's and the Democrat also another great charge to bring. Yes, uh, you know, and the Democratic Republicans in Congress who are kind of bringing this in the House of Representatives, they actually use it as a way to intimidate Federalist judges. Many of the judges are Federalist. Many of the people in the House are Democratic Republicans, and they use it to kind of bully them into doing what they want. Um, Did it John get Marshall, canceled? <laughs> well, John Marshall 
defends Chase, and then the Senate comes in and acquits Chase. Yeah. And a couple of Democratic Republicans switch sides, and they actually say, we're not going to remove Chase. Because they see it as a dangerous precedent, right? Because it's like, well, we're just going to go back and forth and back and forth. And and it's that's actually true, right? Like, that's why there hasn't been an expansion of the court. That's why there hasn't been impeachment proceedings brought forth um, against any of the Supreme Court justices. Because then, as, as now, we recognize that it's just opening Pandora's box of this never-ending political battle back and forth. Mm-hmm. They got that then, and, and I think it's the same problem we have. Well, I think the problem with Chase, and I think the reason maybe they got some Democratic-Republican senators to side with the Federalist on it was that political bias is a really hard thing to argue. And it's in, you know, sure, he's a Federalist. He's going to come with certain perspectives he has. Anybody's going to do that. I mean, and that's why it kills me in confirmation hearings when potential justices act like they're never, they're not going to call on anything they've ever thought in their entire life when deciding cases. And that's just utter bollocks, right? Well, it's insane because it's like your entire expertise is built upon what you've read and, and all, right. I mean, it's all about life experience. So to assume that you're not going to draw that in is, um, yeah, like you said, that's bollocks. I think that's what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we also get a conspiracy trial Ooh, okay. during Jay's during Jay's tenure, um, and the whole thing is this: the Supreme Court actually, when they're kind of high, um, uh, high trials for like things like treason and stuff, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court gets involved. Um, so uh, Aaron Burr. Um, you know, famously uh, had to kind of leave the East Coast. <laughs> Did he have to leave? He was forced? Well, uh, you know, I mean, he shot and killed. Can't be dueling. Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> right. I mean, he thought he could get away with it, I think, because they went across the Hudson to New Jersey to do it. Because I think New York may have had actual law outlawing it at that point, but New Jersey maybe didn't. Um, but anyway, Burr kind of flees and he may have entered into kind of an attempt to create his own country. <laughs> well, again, this is what I love about this time period. I say it over and over and over again. Like things are really shaky. They're on such shaky ground. And like, the whole let's all be a country together thing, like it almost falls apart so many different times in these early years. And uh, the only thing holding it together, I think is like this fear of just having too much chaotic, you know, too much proximity to chaos. Right. It's just like, there's this conservative nature to like the court being established, et cetera, that, they would rather like that we're in it together, even though we might disagree a little bit than having like these little chaotic fiefdoms. But it it was close so many times. So remind me, does Hamilton like include this Burke this Burr trying to set up his own country? I've not seen it. (gasps) Well, you, Oh, you're so upset right now. You need to go like, 
I'm pretty sure you have the service you need. I'm not going to say their name because I don't want to give them free advertising. You should watch it. It's really interesting. Um, it's a as an historian, I think you'll appreciate it. As first, it's good just as entertainment. As an historian, I think you you will appreciate some things there. But as far as I know, there's not a lot. There's a little of a nod to it. There's not a lengthy contemplation about Burr the traitor. <laughs> um. Isn't so, that the whole point of it, though? Well, I mean, here's the thing. So John Marshall's friends with Alexander Hamilton. They're all um, friends at the end of the day, aren't they? Well, I mean, yes, even but, even they were friends, you know. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I mean, but the Federalists were all chummy, very much chummy mm -hmm, with one mm -hmm, another. Mm -hmm. And and when um, Marshall has to preside over the treason trial for Aaron Burr. His friend. Uh, Vice President Aaron Burr, by Vice the way. Vice President Aaron Burr. Oh, who yeah. Was did house I forget, the Virginia did Penitentiary. I did I forget to mention that he was Vice President at this right. point as I well? I mean, that's another thing, right? It's like, it's so wild. It is this like, isn't, you this can't isn't, even make it up. This isn't just uh, uh, normal citizen Aaron Burr. This is Vice President no, of the United States Vice Aaron Burr. Vice President of the United States. Um, so Marshall kind of presides over the trial and he actually makes a lot of demands of the president of the United States <laughs> during the yeah. trial. Yeah. I mean, he's like, look, if well, we're going to have this trial, we're going to have it. Well, Jefferson, um, no, he did actually release the documents, but he said he didn't have to but, right, because right. of executive privilege. He exactly. said, I'm going to give you the documents, but if I don't want to, I don't have to. Right. I'm going to give them to you because you're my friend. Right. Kind of. But I don't um, have to do this. Yeah. Right. I, and, and so this is this thing, this executive privileges here at this point as well. I mean, 1805, uh, no, 1807 is when mm -hmm. the trial is going on. Right. 1807, executive privilege is being bandied about as this kind of thing. But I find it very interesting. Jefferson's like, I don't have to give you these documents, but I'm going to. But I'll cooperate for the sake of the country. But I don't have to. But I don't have um, to. Now, here's the thing, though. Does Marshall make a correct ruling in this? Now, it's not a Supreme Court ruling, mm -hmm. but it is Marshall as the Chief Justice, which is kind of adjacent, right? Mm -hmm. Marshall acquits Burr. Actually, he directs the jury to acquit Burr. And he also makes this big statement about the evidence. Most of the evidence against Burr was not it was inadmissible. Um. Does Marshall do this because it's the right thing to do, or does Marshall do this because he sees if he if he convicts Burr, this is going to create a lot of problems? Yeah, I think it's all about trying to maintain a precarious political stability at the time. I think had he not done that, um, the the potential because that's the other thing. Like Aaron Burr's vice president, because he's very popular, right? Right. He's extremely you popular. Become vice president based on a vote. It's not they don't run tickets together. Right. Yeah. So well, this he was his whole beef. Was like was the his, number two choice. This was his this was his beef with Hamilton, right? Was exactly. that Hamilton had incredible authority in deciding and dissuading which way this went, and he didn't pick Burr. Right. Um But th but that's the whole thing, is like this guy has incredible 
political backing, like in constituents who wanted him to be the president. And so if he's ruled against and he goes and tries to make his own country, there's a strong possibility that a lot of states would follow suit. And then you would have a split in this already really shaky unification of these states, right? So I think, again, you have this very conservative decision in order to maintain the unification of the states. Now, we don't engage in counterfactuals as historians. I mean, they're fun to talk about in a pub or something, but we don't do it. Are you going to say but? But. (laughs) Does the 1807 decision, if Marshall comes down and says, no, you can't do this. This is treason. You are sentenced to death. You cannot do this. Does it help lessen the likelihood people in 50 years are going to uh. see leaving as an it's that's the thing is I think Marshall basically kicks the can down the road mm. right by that like happens acquitting. a lot of times in the 18th century right a lot of kicking the can down the road where the resolution has to come from civil war um but I but I think I mean it's it's funny like 50 years later you know anybody who's making decisions in the south about seceding is a child at this point if they're even alive but a very uh, a child but I could just, in my head, I just picture all these like slave owning groundhogs popping their heads up. Mm. And they're like, oh, so if things don't go the way we like, we can just make our own we country. Can just leave because right? evidently not there's punishment. no repercussions. There's no punishment right. that gets enacted on this. Right. Um, I mean, so Marshall's this really complicated guy, right? I mean, on the one hand, he's like, judicial review. But on the other hand, he's like, oh, Burr, who definitely tried to found his own independent republic. And again, would have had a lot of support to do so. And, And there isn't a lot of national pride. There isn't a lot of um, history, really, of of these people all hanging out together. There's not, you know, the national anthem's not a thing, right? I mean, it's just... It is such an important moment in our history because it could have gone in another direction very easily. And that's not, I don't think that that's dealing in counterfactuals, but I think it is just to say that this decision was very important at a um, crossroads, I think, for whether the country was going to be able to stay united or not, because this is still a very new concept. Mm hmm. Um, so the other big case under Marshall, like the, the kind of mammoth cases, and there are a lot of big cases, the other big one that always gets kind of trotted out before Jackson, before Andrew Jackson becomes president is McCullough versus Maryland. And this is where we get this kind of really pointed discussion about tax, who can tax whom. Um, and this is, uh, where the Supreme Court asserts that the power to tax is the power to destroy. And the, you know, the Congress establishes the second bank of the U.S. as a national bank. Um, and But the state of Maryland um, creates a tax it levies against it. And so the head of the bank um, 
at least in Baltimore. He's like a branch manager. I for some reason I thought he was the head of the bank. Oh, and then I'm like, no, he's just some branch manager yeah. in Baltimore. Actually yeah. says, no, we're not going to pay the tax. Right. Um, so McCullough individually gets held responsible in the Maryland court system, which is interesting. It's an interesting kind of aside about tax law. If you were responsible for collecting a tax in kind of an official position, oftentimes, definitely during the colonial period, but even during this early republic period, if you didn't collect said tax, you were personally on the hook for that. Even if it wasn't money that you owed. No, that is one of the most interesting facts I think about early American history is like, that's why they were going around so earnestly collecting money. The person who was tapped to collect the taxes was responsible for bringing in the money. And that was another reason. Like, so when the tax collectors used to get tarred and feathered, I was just like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this is so cruel. Cause like, they're they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't because if they go back without the money then they're they're on the hook for it but if they don't go and collect you know if they go and try to collect it to not be on the hook they're getting tarred and feathered right like that was not a popular place to be in um as a tax collector at that time but yeah they they took on the debt and so they're almost like kind of like bounty hunters in a way yeah Mm -hmm. dog who came up with that that like whole, because like, who it just wants, doesn't make because, sense. Well, the whole thing is is uh, so unless you're going to kind of engage in a thing where the tax collectors get to skim some off the top. Oh right. Why would you do it? Right, right. Um, but it's kind of a function. If a if a government survives on taxes, it's a function you have to have. Um, yeah. but so the so the court kind of in Maryland finds McCullough guilty, and it kind of goes to the Supreme Court. And what's funny is Maryland immediately like says Congress has no right to establish a national bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a like, big point of contention, right? Which is like, wait, I thought this was about taxes. And it's like, Maryland's like, no, this is about a national bank. Really? Yeah, that, that they find it to be unconstitutional. Right. And they say there's no specific clause in the constitution that says the Congress can do this. So Marshall actually said, um, uh, he actually cr- uh, codifies this idea of implied powers. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, the Constitution doesn't have every single thing described, but there are definitely implied powers. Um, now, is Marshall overreaching here? I mean, it's a really weird thing, right? Sometimes he seems to overreach and other times he refuses to rule in something. I don't know. This seems like an overreach to me because the Congress does say anything not specified as something Congress can do is kind of kicked back. Anything the federal government can't do is kicked back to the local state governments. Well, I think at this point that this decision comes down, I mean, what year is that? It's 1816? Uh, 1819. 1819. But in 1816, Congress establishes the second national bank. In right. 1890, the case appears, right? And you have... 19. 1819. 1819 is when the case appears at the Supreme Court. And you have this justice who's who's had a long career at this point, right? Like Chief Justice John Marshall, he's the longest serving Chief Justice, right? Instilled, right? He's still. Still, still. the longing, ser- longest uh, serving. Um, and so... John Roberts just crossed 
17 years, I think. So John Roberts has actually joined kind of an elite group of people who've, as he approaches 20 years as chief justice, he's in a very kind of rarefied group. Most chief justices don't really serve that long. Well, in this case, I would argue that he's been there for a while. He is an ardent federalist, right? And at this point in his career, we're post, you know, the uh, War of 1812. There's a little bit more stability in terms of, you know, the country being codified into more of a union. I think he felt comfortable at that point where he may not have been maybe a decade prior to say, yeah, we're actually allowed to do a little bit more than you think we are. And start well, kind is... of setting this precedent that like, well, there's a lot more powers that are involved here that you just don't know about. Right. Well, I mean, it's more than 15 years after Marbury versus Madison, exactly, right? And, and things, exactly. And, and there was a and, whole war, right? I mean, it, right. it's... <laughs> so so um, Marshall actually says, let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the Constitution and all means which are appropriate which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited, but consistent with the letter and the spirit of the Constitution are the constitutional. S- the spirit. That's this is, the so big the, problem. So the people who are like originalist and like, well, it doesn't mm-hmm. say this. The fourth chief justice of the Supreme Court actually lays down this principle of as long as it's in the spirit, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what's causing um, so much problem. So, I mean, this is the interesting thing about McCullough versus Maryland. First of all, if it had simply been the Supreme Court saying, you know, actually the U.S., the federal government can't establish a bank, that in and of itself would have been enough. But mm-hmm. then it goes on beyond that. And it goes back to the McCullough tax issue. And this is where Marshall says it's the power to destroy. The power to tax is the power to destroy. And they say that Maryland cannot tax this national bank. Um, This is a hugely controversial decision, much more so than the, than the the kind of their decision that they could open a bank, that they could establish a bank is this idea that the states can't tax that bank. this is a big argument about sovereignty, state sovereignty, I think. I mean, if states cannot tax this specific group, what does that mean? Well, I, I think have, it. Mm-hmm. They don't have sovereignty over them. They don't have sovereignty. And, you know, you follow the money, right? It's like mm-hmm. if you take away economic power from mm-hmm. these these individual states, like you're really starting to cripple their autonomy. Right. I I think it's a a landmark decision there. And I don't know if it's overreach, but it definitely lays this precedent that the federal government is going to end up having some supremacy. And it I think it kind of lays the foundation for reconstruction in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, so you get that and then you get I mean, God, the Marshall Court is just like landmark decision after landmark decision. Cohen's versus Virginia. The Supreme Court can hear cases uh, that originate, that are appeals to state cases, Mm -hmm. like that a state case can become a case that the Supreme Court hears, even if the issue is a state issue, right? Right, 
Right. And, and then that gives the umbrella authority of the Supreme Court to create laws of the land. And the states mm -hmm. very slowly start to lose their autonomy in dictating their their laws and their outcomes. Um, and the Federalists really start to win and take over here. And I mean, it it's kind of like a slow march toward this, but it was definitely laid out in the early days. And it just took it took literally time for people to become comfortable enough for this to be the prescription, basically, for how this country would be run. It just took a lot of effort. 1824, Gibbons versus Ogden, the Commerce Clause, and the idea that the federal government can regulate commerce. That's and in a fact, huge one, right? And in fact, they have the exclusive right to regulate commerce. Right. And this plays in uh, commerce can include even rights to water. Mm -hmm. Right. And like who gets access to it and how it's distributed and that the federal government kind of plays into that. Whereas like certain states may have a vested interest in in, you know, protecting their their commodities. Right. And that the federal government is allowed to regulate the state commerce. Yeah. That's another really big one. Well, so Marshall does not go as far as, um, uh, a day Webster who was, uh, representing Gibbons. Daniel Webster wanted to say that Congress had the only power to regulate commerce. Marshall resists that and says, you know, the States had, there's a role for States to regulate commerce, but, with the idea of Mer McCullough versus Maryland in mind, if we ever get to a case where a, a state and a federal attempt to regulate commerce conflicts, McCullough versus Maryland puts this, the federal law as supreme. Mm -hmm. It supersedes it. Um, so, you know, it's the Gibbons versus Ogden case was interesting because people liked it. It was a popular decision. It was a popular decision. So it's like people are easing in their anxiety of losing control over state powers and are actually starting to lean more heavily into this idea of a centralized government, it sounds like. So we get then to how involved Supreme Court justices, particularly chief justices, should be in like day-to-day -day politics. Mm. Uh, John Marshall is a very publicly critical uh, publicly critical of Andrew Jackson's candidacy for president of the United States. Um, and, you know, he doesn't like how Jackson has talked about John Quincy Adams. He also kind of doubts Johnson's qualifications for the office. Um, he doesn't make a lot of, he doesn't make nice nights with Jackson, even when it becomes clear Jackson's probably going to win the presidency. Um, so when Jackson becomes president, immediate animosity between the two. Um, Jackson is a populist. Arguably, he's the first real populist president. Because mm -hmm. I think, I, I, some people might try to argue um, Washington is, but Washington's the presidency is so kind of new at that point. I don't think he's really a populist. Jackson is definitely a populist. What and a populist is somebody who wants to be president. And what George Washington didn't want to be president. Right, right. right? So it's somebody who wants to be in charge. And George Washington, I think he was just like, take this cup from me. You know, like, please. So one of Jackson's, so Jackson really appeals particularly to rural voters 
in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of these, there are these tentative agreements between the federal government and various um, tribal organizations across the Southeast. And Jackson really wants to rescind those agreements and allow further expansion um, into the old, what we call the old West, right? That's the old West. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1823, Johnson versus McIntosh, a Marshall court decision um, had ruled that the federal government in their own words had supremacy in dealings with native American tribes. Mm-hmm that states actually couldn't do those things on their own. Um, Despite this, Georgia, kind of embracing Jackson's ideas, really steps up their controls over their attempts to kind of push the Cherokee out of the state. Um, And... uh, Georgia passes a new set of laws, and eventually there's a case that comes to the Supreme Court, the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. And then comes a really problematic decision. What's the decision? Uh, First, they say there's no standing. Right, that they're not even allowed to bring the case to the court because they're not citizens. Because they are not citizens. They are right. domestic dependents. Right. That is that is huge. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, it's just mind-boggling. Like, I, I, I try to, like, put together what is Marshall's like, what is Marshall thinking? Like, how does he envision all of this working together? Well, I think he sees it as a slippery slope of like, if you start allowing indigenous people to take suits to court and that they're wanting to be included in citizenship, then we're going to have to restructure the ways that we we run this country, right? And it, I think that mm-hmm. it just seems like we have to put a stop to this immediately. And what's interesting about the Cherokee, and this is highlighted at the... Um, Gosh, what museum was I at recently? Were there, it's probably in Philadelphia. They're talking about like, oh, no, it's the Smithsonian. It's the, um, it's the Native American Museum of the Smithsonian. Museum of the American Indian. Yeah. Museum of the American Indian. Museum of the American Indian. They talk very specifically about this case and about how Cherokee people went to great lengths to learn English, to learn law to get highly involved in politics, et cetera, so that they could bring their um, disputes forth and even going to extreme lengths to, to what they would call like um, Americanize, right. Or, or something they were still denied their right to even bring the suit forth, even though they had an extremely um, robust understanding of the law and everything. I mean, they went to, again, great lengths to do this. And it was this decision that kind of lays out the future of, you know, whether these people are even going to be considered citizens. And um, it's it's a very huge, tragic blow to indigenous people at, the, at this point. I mean, I, you know, obviously I don't have like a crystal ball that gives me kind of insight into J, uh, John Marshall's ultimate rationale. I think he sees it as a slippery slope for enslaved peoples. 
because I think that's he an sees, interesting point, right? To, because I think he sees right. Go, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, so that is an there's an argument that like this classic history textbook is used in college, like the phoner text about like it's a slow march toward including more and more people to be citizens. And, and I think that decisions like this are like really good examples of how there was a really strong fight against allowing anybody who wasn't a wealthy white upper class man to be included in conversations of citizenship ever. And despite any differences that they may have had with one another, there was a really strong unification between the white men of that era to, to, uh, purposely disenfranchise and exclude many groups of people. I, I think it's interesting what you said about, cause I think it, I was like, Oh, it's a slippery slope toward other indigenous uh, people coming forward and, and claiming rights. I think it's really interesting what you said about slavery. I hadn't thought about it in that way. And I think that that's probably true, right? It's like, well, if we start including people who's next to come and bring forth a grievance and, and what, would the Supreme Court's decision, what kind of precedent would that set if I were to make a decision that included, you know, these people as full citizens? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the next administration or the next administration, the next Supreme Court chief justice is actually going to directly engage with this and kind of make some very bold, bold statements. But I think Marshall's trying to place nice, play nice with the slaveholders as well. I think he, he does this, but then again, because Marshall has these oftentimes conflicting decisions, in Worcester versus Georgia, uh, there are a couple of missionaries who are on Cherokee land in Georgia, and they're actually arrested by the state of Georgia because the state had a law that prohibited you from being on land. Uh, they prohibited white people specifically from being on Indian land unless they had a license from the state. Um. And it goes to the Supreme Court and um, actually the, the, uh, the 1832 presidential election, this, this case becomes a big issue for people. People are watching what's going to happen. And the Supreme Court overturns the conviction, says the state law is unconstitutional, um, and says that it amounts to Georgia exercising control over the Cherokee that if you go back to kind of the Cherokee nation versus Georgia, that the federal government has a monopoly on power in dealing with Indians. So this is where reportedly Andrew Jackson says, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Because Andrew Jackson actually supported George's ideas to be able to make decisions unilaterally about what were, what was going on with the Cherokee. Um, because he couldn't actually get enough people in Congress at this point to support his grand plans for kind of removal. Um, I mean, so many precedent-setting decisions, so many decisions that shape relationships between the federal government and the states, the federal government and people making claims to citizenship. Um, so many decisions that are going to feed into the powder keg in 1860, right? Um, 
And it's funny because the guy we're going to talk about next time, Taney, he usually gets the he usually gets blamed for this, right? Because Taney's going to make some whew, some interesting decisions. <laughs> He's going to write the majority opinions on some interesting cases. Um, but I think Marshall, I, I, I think Marshall is doing stuff. He, he's sending mixed messages. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he has such a long term and there's so much political turmoil in the time that he does serve. And there are so many changing interests in the time that he does serve. And I think he's a great example of how they are completely incapable of being agnostic politically. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great example of like, it is just impossible to recuse yourself from the politics of the moment in making such decisions. And I think each decision that we discussed today can be, it could be, and should be, we did consider it within the context that it was made. Um, and I think the, the earliest decisions, the most conservative ones, uh, were, you know, at the, you know, the, trying to just keep some level of peace and calm in, in a very tumultuous moment. And I think his decisions became a little more bold as time went on uh, and just reflective of the political, the era and the context. And, and again, I just I don't think that they can extract themselves from what's happening politically. So. Marshall, speaking of his kind of mixed bag, and I think this ties back to our presentism topic last week. Mm. Marshall was an adamant um, opponent of slavery. He said it was evil, mm -hmm. but he also owned slaves. Oh, okay. A lot of people who said it was evil owned slaves. Um, he also really felt that mass emancipation could lead to revolution. He supported Virginia, the Virginia 1806 law that required freed blacks to leave the state. He also favored sending freed blacks to Africa. I mean, that has a up, lot to do with the Haitian Revolution, right? In that moment mm -hmm. in time. And it has a lot to do with Gabriel's insurrection and, and the anxiety that that caused amongst white people in Virginia, right? Um, well, he becomes a member of the American Colonization Society. Right, right. Which and this is like something Abraham. Mm -hmm. And this is something Abraham Lincoln's going to be kind of affiliated with initially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and and kind of most importantly, it's, so we kind of have these personal things, but he also has this case uh, about the slave ship um, Antelope in 1825 that he rules in, and that he actually says slavery is against natural law. Mm -hmm. But he allows, you know, the enslavement of part of the ship's cargo of these human beings that are enslaved, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, the other two-thirds of the people aboard the ship had to be sent back to Liberia. But he did kind of rule that a third of the people on the ship could be legally enslaved. So it's it's a very complicated thing. And and I think you kind of commented on this earlier. I think the thing is that Marshall is living across a big change in time and perceptions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about things. I mean, he's famously one of the last of the founding fathers. Um, he's the last cabinet member of John Adams' administration. Um, uh, 
he uh, was the last cabinet member to have served in the 18th century. It's kind of the nation kind of went on and and Marshall kind of held in many ways that kind of mixed bags of ideas that people like Jefferson and other founding fathers did, right? Where they, for some reason, they felt it was okay to kind of say slavery wasn't bad, was bad, but at the same time owned slaves. Right. It's like a hodgepodge of contradiction. Right. They didn't, um, but the court is going to kind of change fundamentally at this point, because now Andrew Jackson is going to appoint somebody that he knows with certitude is going to rule very favorably on all the issues that Andrew Jackson holds dearest. So you surprised we we got so much about the Supreme Court? I am. I'm very surprised. I, and I wasn't like as bored as I thought I would be. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. Mm-hmm.